19, chapter 19 of Matthew. Today we're going to be discussing the rich young ruler. And if you ever read this story before and kind of got confused, hopefully today it can be clarified through the power of the Holy Spirit working in us as we read and meditate on His Word. Have you ever seen any of those ads promoting weight loss programs or weight loss, right? You see either through pills or through diet plans or through exercises, right? You see uh, they show you testimonies of people before and after pictures and you're like, whoa, they were like that and now they're shredded or they lost all this weight or they got bigger in muscles. Now, have you ever started one of those programs to only find out it's not as easy as you thought. You go in believing in the ads and something, you become overconfident, like, yeah, I can do this, it's going to be easy, no, 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 no pressure. If they can do it on that TV, so can I. But you, you become frustrated because you didn't know that you were going to be so hungry because you're not eating as many calories as you usually are. You didn't know you had to wake up extra early to work out because part of that regimen is working out and eating right. You start to doubt, and after two long, dreadful hours, you decide to quit because the reality hits you. It's not easy. You had these false expectations that weren't true. You built a false sense of hope on the lies that you saw on the TV and how easy it was going to be, but only to come to a harsh reality, and I hate to say it, no pain, no gain. See, today we're going to see the same thing. See, the Jewish teaching of salvation through works gave many Jews a false hope, a false sense of security. We're also going to see the frustration of one of those Jews when confronted with the truth of how he was truly to be saved. And the reality of the actual truth of what it takes to obtain eternal life could either lead a person, reject, sorry, could reject Christ, a person could reject Christ, or the reality can lead a person to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's read Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 through 26 together. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Amen? So we're entering Matthew 19. Jesus is leaving Capernaum, and he's heading towards Jerusalem, and he stops beyond the Jordan River in Perium to do ministry. We talked about how he was performing signs and miracles and wonders. We saw that he was teaching and debating the Pharisees concerning divorce. He was discipling his 12, right? He was talking to them about the whole, you know, then who's going to get married? Why? Who's going to get married with these conditions? And he, he walked them through that. We learned on Sunday that he's blessing children. Right? He's blessing children. And today we're going to l- continue to learn how he continues to teach and instruct his disciples on another topic. See, that topic is going to be salvation. Jesus on salvation. And we're going to learn how many people are drawn to the gospel and are drawn to Jesus. However, some never actually come to a saving faith and a personal relationship with him. So today's lesson is going to consist of two parts. Jesus on salvation. Two parts. Part one, a revealing question. And that's going to be from verse 16 through 22. And each has a subheading that we'll go as we we read. And the second part is going to be a glorious hope, which is verse 22, 23 to 26. The theme, the idea that I want you to have in your mind as we study and read and meditate on God's word is this. Salvation is a gracious gift from God and not a result of man's work. I'm going to repeat it. Salvation is a gracious gift from God, not a result of man's work. So let's begin today with looking at the first part of the lesson, a revealing conversation. This conversation begins with a question. Verse 16. And someone came to him and said, Teacher, What good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? All three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, reference this young ruler as being rich. Matthew references him being young. And Luke references him as being a ruler. Therefore, he is the rich, young ruler. Luke 18, 18. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? See, this young man references Jesus as a teacher, showing respect to Jesus and his ministry. He validated what Jesus had to say. He thought he was important, so he actually respected him and wanted to know his opinion and his answer on, what do I need to do to be saved? What good thing I need to do to be saved? He also demonstrates sincerity in his question because he was, a lot of commentators wrote that he was probably a religious leader. And asked his question openly in public. He put himself to be vulnerable to the criticism of the religious leaders of the time would say, haven't we taught you this since you were born? Like, you really don't know how to get to heaven? Are you serious? Are you asking this question? But the man was so sincere, and he wanted that question to be answered, that he asked it anyway. And we also know that this young man revered him, because in Mark's account, he's kneeling before Jesus. Mark 10, verse 17, as he was setting out on a journey, A man ran up to him 
and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Let's be clear. This young ruler has a presupposition or an idea of what you need to do to go to heaven. Anybody guess what that is? What does this young ruler think he needs to do to go to heaven? Silas. A good deed. To be good. Alright? Good works. Is this something new? Is this something that is... No, it's something that was a Jewish person would be taught this since they're young. Uh, Leviticus 18.5 So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Good, the Greek for good here is an act of kindness or other morally positive action. So we know it's positive and it's morally good. Eternal life here is eternity with heaven. A commentator wrote, Many Jews believe that a specific act of goodness could win eternal life. And this young man, assuming this opinion is correct, seeks Jesus' view as to what that act might be. He thought, one good, what good thing, teacher, can I do to obtain heaven? Now, works-based salvation was common in this gentleman's time period, and it is also common in our period in time, where many people think that the way to heaven is by being a good person. And we're going to discuss what being a good person actually means. Yet this man still felt something that still was missing. He recognized a deep spiritual need that wasn't fulfilled with the teaching of the time. He knew he had to be good, but there was something else that he was looking for to be saved. And that's why he comes to Jesus with this question. Another commentator wrote that he was desperate to find his answer, just as the children had received their blessing from the Lord a couple of verses ago. He was determined to receive his blessing from the Lord. So after the question, Jesus gives an answer. We go to the answer, verse 17. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, Keep the commandments. So Jesus first clarifies, why are you asking me what good thing that you need to do? Let's be clear. Your definition of goodness is not the same definition of goodness for God. Because he says there is only one who is good. Therefore, who is good and who is only one that is good? It's God. And what is God? He's perfect. Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.48, Therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Psalm 145.8-9, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and great in loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. So, the idea of the young ruler coming to Christ and saying, What good thing do I need to do? Jesus is saying, you really want to do a good thing to go to heaven? Guess what you need to be? What do you need to be? Uh, who said it? Perfect. You need to be perfect. And you would think the young ruler would get it. But no, he doesn't. And let's be clear. When Jesus says, if you w- but if you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. Christ is not, for, by any means, trying to promote works-based salvation. That is not what he's saying. We know that heaven 
and salvation is obtained through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone. See, what Jesus is trying to do here, he's trying to reveal to the young ruler what's inside his heart. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's evangelizing. He is evangelizing the person and trying for the person to see his condition before God. And what is the best way to evangelize somebody? It's to show them their condition before a holy God. And what would you use to show somebody's condition before a holy God? Anybody want to give it a shot? What would you use? Thoughts. Which are called? The Ten Commandments. Right? The Ten Commandments. A commentator wrote, Proper evangelism must lead a sinner to measure himself against the perfect law of God so he can see his deficiencies. Salvation is for those who hate their sin. Galatians 3 verse 24 says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may just be justified by faith. That is the purpose of the law. That is the purpose of the commandment to show us how inept we are to even fathom the idea of being perfect yet alone save ourselves. But yet the young ruler goes by his head, doesn't even think about it. So after Jesus responds to the young man, he's still not satisfied with Jesus, his answer, and he wants to go a little deeper. He wants some specifics. So therefore we go into the specifics, verse 18 through 19. Then he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear wit false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the rich young ruler knew these commandments, and he probably thought he did most of them, as we'll see in the answers later on. But there was still a desire, burning question, what else do I need to do to be saved? Like, yeah, I got it. But we know that the young rich ruler was blind. So, why does Jesus entertain the question? He's still evangelizing. He's trying to get the person to see what their condition is. He's setting it up perfectly. So, he lists these commandments. He lists four of the commandments found in Exodus 20. I'm just going to read you real quick the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no gods other than before me. Verse 4, you shall not make for yourself an idol. Verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Verse 12, honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged. Verse 13, you shall not murder. Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Verse 15, you shall not steal. Verse 16, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Verse 17, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and his male servant and his female servant or his ox. He chose these commandments on purpose. Why? Well, we can speculate. Two reasons why he chose these commandments. Number one, he chose these commandments because they were outwardly commandments that you can perform outwardly that people can see. And if a self-righteous person were to choose which ones are easier, he would choose these, right? How many never killed somebody before? If you did, you would be in jail. So we can all say we haven't killed anybody. Oh, I'm such a good person because I haven't killed. Or for those that are married, 
we haven't committed adultery. Because if we did, we probably would be divorced. So therefore, we haven't. It's an easy, self-righteous commandment that we can follow. Or, he's hoping that the reason why the young ruler is asking is because he's been under Jesus' teaching. And he's heard what he says about these commandments. For example, what did Jesus say about murder? You have heard that the ages were told you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. What about committing adultery? What did Jesus say about that? You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks, looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. What about you shall not steal? Many of them thought, I don't steal. I'm, I'm pretty good. But what does Jesus say to the Pharisees? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses. These widows, these poor widows coming with offerings to the church, and they're taking them. Or many people giving the offerings, hey, make sure this goes to the widow. And the religious leader's like, well, I really need to fill up my car. And I'm a religious leader. If, if I can't be there, <laughs> who's going to preach? I'll just take that money for myself. This is what they were doing. So Jesus is saying, really, you don't steal this. What about this example? You shall not bear false witness. We know that when he was condemned, says um, Matthew 25 and verse 60, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but later on, two came forward. Honor your father and mother. That's pretty simple. Pretty self-righteous, right? But were they doing that? What did Jesus teach? What did Jesus, what did Jesus, taught? What did Jesus teach them? We learned about this. For God said, honor your father and mother, and who speaks evil of father and mother should be put to death. But you say, whoever says to his father and mother, whatever I have that will help you has been given to God. Basically, what they're saying is, the parents come for help financially. They say to the parents, well, the money that I could help you out, I would actually promise it to God. So, sorry, I can't really help you out. And you know what they would do? They would find another excuse to have, oh, I really need this emergency. And they would... Even though they promised it to God, the Pharisees would be like, well, if you give me, you promise of 100, give me 10, and you can be forgiven. Keep 90 for yourself. That's what they were doing. Were, were they honoring their parents with this? No, no, they weren't. And love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second one is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of these two commandments, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So why did you mention them specifically? Remember, he's still evangelizing. He's still trying and hoping that the young ruler would see. Well, damn, I'm not a good person. I have sinned. I, I do commit these sins. That's what he's doing. He's trying. And he's going to continue to do so. How does, he, how does the, the young man respond? With false hope. In verse 20, false hope. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? You know what, what comes to mind when I read this? Arrogance. Pride. Like, can you honestly say with a straight face that you perfectly honor your parents? Perfectly, like never disobey them, never talk under your breath when they're telling you to do something? Never got mad at them. 
really, can you actually say with a, with a straight face that you've loved your neighbor more than yourself 100% of the time? Oh, I've, I've done those. He's, remember, he's blinded. He still doesn't see his condition before a holy God. He still doesn't know what being good is. He has his own definition of good because it makes him feel good. But we'll see that he still asks, what else am I still lacking? He could have said, oh, I'm doing it, I'm out. He could have said that, right? But we see that he doesn't. He still says, I've been doing this, but what am I still lacking? He wanted to clear his conscience. He wanted to know the answer as the good things he was doing were probably not outweighing the bad, maybe. You know, sometimes self-righteous people say, well, the good outweighs the bad. I'm a good person. The more the bad, the good. I need to do something that can get me over the top so I can be good again with the Lord. But you know what's causing this in his heart? God. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles, or unbelievers, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. These, there's something that's convicting him. And that's God in conscience convicting, knowing that there's something that he needs. What else am I still lacking to be saved? Among his blindness, he still feels like there's something that he needs. Here where it says, all these things I have kept, all in the Greek means every. Here where it says, I have kept, is the only place where it appears in the Greek, here in, this, in, in Matthew. And it means to guard and keep watch, making sure that you've done most of them. Lacking, what am I still lacking? In the Greek here means, what can I do to keep on working to make it right? He was still stuck on the idea that he had to do something. Not that someone could save him. Not that someone could save him. He, Mark says in 1020, and he said, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. This guy is like, yeah, I've done them. Not, not only have I done them, I've done them since I was a kid. Sounds like many of us. I've been to going to church when I was born. My parents are Christian. My great-grandparents are Christian. My great-great-grandparents are Christian. I'm related to John MacArthur somewhere, somehow. I'm good. I've been keeping the law since I was a baby. He was blinded by his self-righteousness. A commentator wrote, All he wanted from Jesus was another commandment, another formula, another rites or ceremony by which he, got, he could complete his religious obligations and make himself acceptable to God. He tried to show the man the real problem in his life was not his feeling of emptiness or incompleteness, legitimate and important as those feelings were. His great problem from which those felt needs arose was his separation from God and his total inability to reconcile himself with God. See, this false hope was going to be shattered by the reality of what Jesus responds. What are you lacking? Well, let me tell you. Verse 21, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go, sell your, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The Greek for complete is perfect. 
and mainly refers to salvation. A commentator writes, the word perfection suggests here is what it commonly means in the Old Testament, which is an undivided loyalty and full-hearted obedience to God. So basically, what he's saying is, if you wish to be saved, if you wish to be saved and not have any other masters in your heart, go and sell your possessions and give it to the poor. And your treasure in he- you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. See, this is Jesus' final attempt to show this sinner, this sinner, his condition before God. Remember, what was the last commandment that Jesus mentioned to him? What was the last commandment out of the five that I mentioned? What was the last commandment? Love your neighbor more than yourself. You see how Jesus is perfectly playing it to the perfect time where he's going to say, go and sell your possessions. What better way to love your neighbor if you're rich to sell everything and give to the poor? I love how Jesus evangelizes and preaches the gospel. You really want to be saved? Go and prove it. Sell your possessions and follow me. See, if he would have sold his possessions, it would have revealed a true devotion to honor God. And he would have served as evidence of true saving faith. But he didn't. The word chosen to follow me in the Greek means complete obedience within discipleship. Follow me. Complete obedience within discipleship. These are the two most important words, ladies and gentlemen, that you will hear in your entire life. Jesus saying to his followers, to people, follow me. Jesus was calling the young ruler to himself. He was asking him what he asks all of us today. Follow me. He was telling him, leave your false sense of security. Leave your self-righteousness. Follow me. Literally, he's telling him, bow your knee. Make me Lord and follow me. He's asking us today, right now, he's asking you, follow me. Will you be obedient or will you be foolish? Guys, this is the true gospel. This is the gospel according to Jesus. Mark 8, 34-36. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Two words that will save your soul tonight. Follow me. How did the rich man respond? Let's read verse 22. The test, and now we're going to see the failing. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. See, the Greek word for grieving here means to become sorrowful or unhappy. Sorrowful or unhappy. You know where else the same Greek word is used to describe how this man was feeling? Remember when Jesus was in Gethsemane and he was sweating blood because he knew he was going to suffer God's wrath? That is how grieving, that same word is used in Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. It was also used by Herod when he had to kill John the Baptist and he really didn't want to. 
Remember that story? John the Baptist telling him, you shouldn't have married your, your brother's wife. And he actually respected John the Baptist, but the wife had a grudge against him. The, da- the daughter of Herodias, which is the wife of the brother, dances in front of Herod, and Herod's like, oh, I'll give you whatever you want. And she goes, the daughter tells the mom, hey, what do, what do we have for the head of John the Baptist? And Mark 16, 6 says, and although the king was very sorry, grieved, yet because of his oath and because of his vinegar, he was unwilling to refuse her. So the young ruler was devastated. It wasn't like a little cry and I'll be better later. This guy was devastated. Why was he devastated? Well, he loved his own God rather than the God. He loved the created rather than the creator. Think of his ignorance for a second. He wants to be saved. He's willing. He wants to be saved. And Jesus tells him what he has to do, yet he doesn't do it. Does that make sense to you? It doesn't make sense to me. You know why it doesn't make sense to you? Because many of you were washed by the Holy Spirit, were saved by the Holy Spirit, therefore you're able to understand this truth. But for those that don't, they're blinded. They're blinded. He was grieved because he had much property, his sense of security, his life's work, plural for property here in the Greek means possessions including everything, land and riches. This man is no stranger. We've read about this man before. Jesus taught about this man. Remember? In the parables of the seed, in chapter 13, verse 22, and the one whose seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and and it becomes unfruitful. Guys, I want you to think a second. Fathom all the money in the world. Think you have... He could have all the money in the world. Imagine that. Imagine having all the glory in the world. Imagine being famous. Imagine being that famous movie star, the famous athlete, the famous person, and everyone knows you. Imagine being that. Imagine having everything you want, whenever you want, however you want. Imagine going into history books and having this huge legacy. Imagine all that. Now imagine hell. Eternity separated from God. In a lake of fire. You tell me if it doesn't make sense. But, it's because we have the Holy Spirit that allows us to understand that truth. And by all means, please don't think this is only about money. When Jesus is Lord, He wants to be Lord over all. He does not share His glory with anyone. So you can't have a divided heart. See, here the young ruler was asked to choose between riches or Christ. He chose his riches. But what is, what are you being asked that you don't want to give up? Could it be your pride? Thinking that you know more than God? No, I don't want to make Jesus my Lord. I want to have fun. Your definition of fun is not God's definition. Because you want to serve your own kingdom and you want to be your own God. Later on in life, could it be a career over God? Could it be an unbelieving boyfriend or girlfriend over God? Are you not just willing to let it go because, man, that's not, I'm choosing that over, over God. But who are you choosing that? Think about it. So we just finished the first part of the lesson, which was the revealing question. We saw that the young man's question revealed his true heart. 
loves riches more than God. Now, we're going to go into the glorious hope, the second part of the conversation. And in this glorious hope, we see the reality of man's condition in verse 23. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Before we get into the details of this, I don't want you to think, and I want to make it clear, this passage is not teaching that rich people are going to go to hell. Okay? Take that out of your mind. You can be rich, and you can not love money, and you're okay. As a matter of fact, if this is the case, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, we w- would be in hell. Because they were really rich. Right? And we know that they're in heaven. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Because I want to really drill this point in you that you can be rich and not go to hell. You can be rich and love God over money. Luke chapter 19, verse 5. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And Zacchaeus, he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, meaning the people, the Pharisees, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of all my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give them back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. What's the difference between this young, well, I don't know if he's young, but this rich ruler and the young ruler? He was able to make Jesus his Lord in a second. He didn't even think about it. He's like, yes, Lord, come into my house. Lord, I know I've sinned, and I feel sorry for it. I'm going to sell half of my possessions. I'm going to give it to the poor. And if I've defrauded anybody, I'm going to give them four times what I took from them. You think that that was the same attitude of the young ruler? And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. After the young ruler left, Jesus being kind and gracious, he took this opportunity with his disciples to teach them about this. He shares the reality of man's condition. The Greek here for truly, truly I say to you, it's very important. Pay attention to what I'm about to say because it's important. They are an expression of his majesty and authority. Truly I say. The Greek word for hard is difficult, but not impossible. Notice that Jesus does not say it is impossible for a rich man to go into heaven. It is hard for a rich man to go into heaven. To emphasize his point, he uses figurative language to help his disciples understand. In verse 24, again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Guys, this is a colloquial saying of the time. Anybody remember another colloquial saying that we discussed in the book of Matthew? Another saying of the time that people use a lot that is not really to be taken literal. Anybody? Huh? Okay. Okay. If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can do what? Move mountains. Is that really what he was saying? No, but he was saying... The faith that you need to be to believe to move that mountain, if it's God's will. Here, it's another colloquial phrase. And it's an exaggeration how Jesus is saying it's hard. You know how hard it is? A needle and a camel. 
guys, this is an actual camel, the biggest animal in Palestine they can reference, and it's an actual needle, the, the smallest hole they probably could think of. A lot of people might say, well, there's other interpretations of it. Many other commentators that I read, they all said the same thing. Look, there is no gate called the needle gate in Jerusalem wall. Because they were saying, well, is this passage false interpretation of the passage? Some people actually took this passage and taught that, hey, if you're rich, you're going to hell. So that to, to like avoid that, instead of just reading the Bible and reading for what they were like, well, what if we actually thought that there was a gate called the needle gate, and it was so small that the, the camels had to like, they had to take all the loads of the camel, and then they had to kneel, and they would have to go in through the, through the gate. Therefore, it is possible, but it's really hard. No, no, this is a straight up camel, straight up needle. Got it? There's other theories that we can discuss. Uh, the, the Greek for rope and camel, basically the same except for the last letter. So a lot of them said, oh, the scribes, when they were copying it, made a mistake, and that's why they, the rope through the needle. No, camel, needle. Got it? And there's no archaeological evidence that there was a Jerusalem called the Needle Gate. So needle means needle, and camel means camel. This declaration leaves the disciples worried as they grew up thinking that those who were rich had God's favor and would automatically be accepted in heaven. Did you know that? For the Jews, being a sign of being rich was a sign that God was with you. And that therefore, because He's with you and you have favor, you're going to go to heaven. So now we go to the worry of the disciples in verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? The Greek word for astonished means utterly amazed. To be or become outstanding to such a degree as to nearly lose one's mental composure. Like le- le- legit. Like astonished. You know when they used this Greek word after Jesus taught, they were amazed, astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having with authority, not as a scribe. When Jesus was found in the temple by his parents, when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, where have you t- why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you for, I don't mind, three days? When he performed healing miracles, they were utterly astonished, saying he, was, he has done all these things. And finally here, the, the disciples were astonished. But sometimes I'm, I'm reading this, and, I, and like, I'm like, Matt, I'm like, don't the disciples listen to when Jesus preaches? Like, seriously, why are they astonished? Didn't Jesus send them in chapter 10 to go and preach and said, you will be persecuted by my name, and you will be your father and mother, and they will turn you in, and don't be afraid because the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what to say. Where were they? Why are they astonished? I can only assume. Maybe they could have not have been fully saved at the time, and they were just coming to seeing their condition. We know Judas was never saved, and he was, he was out there performing these miracles with the disciples, right? So maybe at this point in time, many of the disciples were like, oh, hold on. Uh, the gospel is make, it's, it's, it's becoming real to me right now, and they're coming saved, right? But still, it doesn't make sense because Jesus just told them, just told the young ruler, sell your riches and follow me. Didn't they do that? <laughs> Didn't literally, literally, they left everything behind to follow Jesus. So why were they astonished? They probably had family members that didn't leave everything behind to follow Jesus. What's going to happen with them? A commentator wrote, if rich people who were good people, blessed by God, were not going to be saved, then what, would, what hope did the poor people have? Maybe that's why they were worried. Regardless of why they were astonished, the good Lord gives them an answer. This leads us to the climax of this conversation and to the good news for each and every one of us today. 
Verse 26, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. The Greek for impossible means not capable. Man alone cannot save himself. You cannot save yourself. The standard is perfection. The Bible says in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. In Romans 3.21, it says, for we all fall short of the glory of God. Ephesians 2.89 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. When the, in here where it says all things means all things. With men, with people, all things are not possible. But with God, everything is possible. Salvation is only a work of God. It, makes, it takes a miracle for us to see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. We're so rebellious against God. Without Him in our lives, we rebel. We choose us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Even as the rich young ruler, we chose riches over God. We chose people over God. We chose ourselves over God. But what does verse 4 say? And that stated this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Only God can open your spiritual eyes to be saved and to make you alive. I plead with you right now, repent and believe. You will never be good enough on your own. It's impossible to save yourself. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and bow your knee to Him. God, guys, God is powerful enough to save. I want you to think right now of a person that you least think could ever be saved in their entire life. Your uncle, your aunt, you're a heathen. I mean, think about the worst of the worst. Guess what? God is powerful enough to save. If he was powerful enough to save a Jewish killer like Paul, to become one of the most influential leaders of Christianity, wrote 13 of the New Testament epistles, he can save anyone for his glory. To conclude, I have a couple of applications for us. Number one is very simple. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Make him Lord. You won't regret it. Following Jesus and his commandments is not burdensome. Number two, evaluate your sense of security. Where is your sense of security for salvation? Is it in yourself or is it in God? And if it's in yourself, I plead with you again, repent and believe in the gospel of God. Number three, praise God. That he is powerful and mighty to save us from our sins. Take a second. Just take a second to meditate on your salvation. Like you're saved. God died for you. He chose you. Not because of what you did, but because of who he is. And the day you die, if you are a believer in Christ, you are going to spend eternity with God. Other people are going to spend eternity in hell. You are going to spend eternity with God. Just meditate on that and praise the Lord that he saved.
Number four, don't overthink how one must be saved. Because God is the one who saves doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility to respond to the gospel. Because you can say, well, God is the one that saves anyway, so what's the point? I can just live my life how I want. And when he opens my eyes, I'll, I'll convert. No, that's not how it goes. The Bible, we know that Scripture clearly teaches that Christ draws to himself those that are his. But at the same time, it also teaches that we have to confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe that he is the Son of God. And we have to respond to the gospel. Last but not least, preach the gospel. Preach this glorious truth to the world. Let everyone who passes your way know of the Christ that lives in you. Know of the hope that you have in Christ. Preach the gospel. Let them know their condition of a sinner need of a Savior. They are the young rich ruler. And I pray that you tonight were like, if I was there, could just tell them, stop thinking that way. Every person that crosses your way that is not a believer is that rich young ruler that you have the opportunity to do so. And you know what? The Bible says all you have to do is preach the gospel. You don't have to worry about saving them. God does. What a blessing and a relief that is. It's not your, your job. Which one is the elector? Which one's not? Your job is to preach it to all because God in His grace has allowed the preaching of His word through us to work for someone's salvation. How can we not speak these truths? How can we not open our mouths? Let us pray. Father, thank you for the miracle of salvation. Thank you for choosing us we love you because you loved us first. If given the opportunity to choose you, Lord, no one would because we're rebellious against you. But God, in your mercy and grace, extended salvation to us through your only beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, who lived a perfect life that none of us could live, died on the cross, rose from the grave, and is seated at your right hand and your word says that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we have salvation. I pray, God, that it is your will today that many here who are not saved can be saved. And we believe this, knowing that you can because you are a mighty, powerful God. I pray that these truths can be embedded in the hearts of our young people right here, right now. That you won't let them sleep until they confess you as Lord. That you can... Put this desire in their hearts, these questions, these burdens in their hearts to make you Lord. I pray that a small group time comes that your word can still be preached and still be edified. In your name we pray.